From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is The Televisionaries. Today we're putting on our glad rags for the new period drama Belgravia. We discuss if you can overhype a TV show and we're pouring ourselves a glass of Cardinet to catch up with those foxy ladies from Fountain Lakes. Yes, it's Kath and Kim. Here with me today are my fellow society mavens from the Herald and the Age newsrooms, guide and green guide editor Paul Kalina, and calling in from our LA studio is our culture editor-at-large Michael Adato. How are you both? Hello, pretty good. Hello, hello. Today we're looking at Belgravia the new upstairs-downstairs drama from Downton Abbey creator Julian Fellows. It opens in 1815, 100 years before the action in Downton Abbey, and follows two families, the newly wealthy Trenchards, whose daughter Sophia is involved with Edmund Bellasus, the only son of one of the wealthiest families in England. Cue the Battle of Waterloo, and a promise to love forevermore is turned upside down. Fast forward 25 years, and the Trenchard and Bellasus families now share a dark secret. Typically, for Julian Fellows, it features scheming servants, cads, bounders, a mismatched young couple, a disgruntled reverend, and enough new housing developments to keep Scott Morrison happy. There are six episodes, and you can find it on BBC First on Foxtel. Before we jump in, let's listen to this clip, which features Sophia, played by Emily Reid, and Lord Bellison, played by Jeremy Newmark-Jones, talking at a ball when they are interrupted by Sophia's mother, played by Tamsin Greig. My mother is coming to break us apart. Why is she so against me? She's convinced nothing good can come of it. Well, then we shall prove her wrong. You mustn't let Sophia monopolise you, Lord Bellasis. You must have many friends here who would be glad of the chance to hear your news. Never fear, Mrs Trenchard. I am where I want to be. That is all very well, my lord. Sophia has a reputation to protect, and the courtesy of your attention may be putting it at risk. I wish you would give me credit for little sense, Mama. I wish I could. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, supper is served. We've all got our reputations to protect, don't we, Michael? We but is do, this, we do. <laughs> is this merely Downton 2.0? Look, I think that's probably what people think coming into it. It's neither a sort of a next step or sort of a another layer of that universe. It's just a much, much darker reflection, I think, of Julian Fellowes' kind of Downton world. I think what Julian Fellowes does incredibly well is he writes narratives through periods of great transition. So I think in Downton what we saw was people upheaved by circumstance and, you know, the Mm. world around them changing. And there is a measure of that here, but I think what's different here is that in, in the world of Belgravia, a lot of the upheaval is very deeply personal the narrative sort of very quickly jumps forward 25 years and what we see then are that these people are all damaged I mean they're they're changed a little bit by the world around them but they're most profoundly damaged by the changes to themselves and and without Mm. I'm not going to sort of give the spoiler away but to sort of a great tragedy that sort of somehow sort of connects the families it's a limited series, so it doesn't have that open-ended sort of freedom. It doesn't have the whimsy that came with Downton, and it certainly doesn't have the humour. I think a lot no. of one of the great appeals of Downton is Maggie Smith and all of that mm. sort of nostril-flaring Aristo comedy. <laughs> I mean, it is a little post-carry-on, and I think she she was very famously very good friends with Kenneth Williams, and you can't help but imagine she's channelling him a little bit when she's flaring her nostrils in Downton. The whole thing, I think, here just sits much, much heavier. God, I found it to be such a dirge. Like, honestly, I fell asleep yeah. in episode three, which is pretty no, much... No, it's hard. It's, it's really hard. 
And it's hard because I think that the Downton creates such a perception like Julian's name and his personal writing brand and the Downton brand. It sort of creates these perceptions in your mind about what you're about to see. But actually, mm. you, you know, the honest truth is what you, when you get there, there's just a very, very different world. Yeah. Now, Paul, does this prove that Julian Fellows only has two stories in him? The first one is the relationship between posh people and their servants. And the second one is the story of an abandoned child between Downton Abbey and his film Gosford Park, which covered both those territories. I mean, he just keeps returning to the same themes over and over again. I don't really agree. I agree with what Mike was saying about the humour. There isn't a whole lot of humour in Belgrave, though there are some very, very light touches. Conversely, I think we have to remember there were some very, very dark moments in Downton. I mean, it's easy just Mm. to remember the Maggie Smith scenes and the the bumbling servant, but let's not forget that. I mean, there was, you know, Lady Sybil who died in childbirth. There's the car smash with... um, Matthew. With Matthew. Yeah, and probably one of the most evil characters we've ever seen on TV, Miss O'Brien, the handmaid of Lady Crawley. The soap on the floor. Yes, yes. Anyway, but, you know, there's this great word. It's a Yiddish word, but it probably arrived from German, Menschlichkeit. And it describes a person of honour, integrity, virtue. And I think that that is the big theme of Julian Fellow's work. I think that's his great preoccupation. He wants to get to the bottom of what a person with Menschlichkeit might look like, what honour and virtue and and integrity are. And I mean, to go back to Downton, in some ways, it's easier to talk about Downton because we don't want to give away too much of what's in Belgravia. But in many ways, for me, the real hero of Downton is Tom Branson. He's the chauffeur Mm. who Mm. Lady Sybil falls in Mm. love with. They take off to Ireland. He abandons her. He goes off and burns down the houses of the aristocrats because, you know, he is this hot-headed Irish nationalist comes back to Downton, tail between his legs. And eventually, of course, he becomes this great central figure of the drama. Mm. And it's really, I think, in many ways about the way that people set aside their differences, set aside their prejudices, you know, those differences of birthright, of social status, of nationality, and find that real honour and integrity amongst themselves. And I think in a similar way, very, very similar themes play out in Belgravia. It's really about finding honour and purpose and and humanity mm. of the characters. There's nothing new here. And I like Downton Abbey. I enjoyed it. It was one of my hate watches because I kind of, every time I watched it, I was like, why am I doing this? The music was the same. The servants downstairs were the same. A bit darker and nastier, but still. And, and also for me anyway, the casting, Tamsin Grigg, I'm just so used to seeing her in black books, I think. So to see her in a non-comedic mm. role, she just seemed incredibly restrained. Same with Philip Glenister. I just want him to break out into his DCI Gene Hunt stuff from Ashes to Ashes and Life on Mars. Like, he was good in it, but mm. everyone just seemed to be holding themselves in too much. Even Harriet Walter um, is sort of, you know, the Maggie Smith-esque you know, rich bitch character. She just seemed to be holding it all in and just I found it far too restrained for me. I think what Julian Fellows does incredibly well is he writes what he knows with great authenticity. I feel like television history is full of people who were great at writing, you know, for arguments like period dramas but tried to write urban New York thrillers Mm. with disastrous 
um, results. I feel like he's, in a strange way, he's sort of to be commended for knowing his lane on the highway and, and <laughs> dr- driving beautifully down it. I think that if you kind of know about him and you know his wife, um, Emma Kitchener, you know, she was a lady-in-waiting to Princess Michael of Kent. I mean, and Kitchener as in the South Africa Kitcheners. I mean, mm. it's a world that he moves in and it's a world he's very, very familiar with and I think he writes about it with great intimacy because I think so many writers write from a place of imagination or invention and I think mm. that's not necessarily maybe Julian's thing. I think what he does beautifully here is he kind of comes at this with a lot of knowledge and he's sort of he's very good at crafting these fictions within a world that I think he knows really well. You see, a lot of those things that you disliked about Louise are the things that really drew me to it. I mean, I loved watching Tamsin Greg <sighs> in it. I just thought mm. her mystery was fabulous. But also to come back to that dialogue, I think there's a brilliance in the way he writes dialogue. And it's almost as if what's unsaid, what's left hanging is more important and matters more than what is actually said. And mm. in the first episode, there is an absolutely magical scene between the Tamsin Gregg character and Harriet Walters' character where they tippy-toe around the secret. The way that they play it and what's left unsaid, what's left hanging, it's absolutely beautiful. I've watched that scene three or four times. I just love watching the way that they play with each other but may also play with the audience. Maybe it's because I've been watching The Great and The Great for me has blown apart period drama. It's got vibrancy, sweariness, sexiness, Nicholas Hult, Elle Fanning, just perfect. And I think watching Belgravia in The Great in quick succession, Belgravia just pales in comparison. Mm. Or maybe it's just the expectations we've piled on top of Belgravia. It is a Julian Fellows production and it was heralded as the new Downton Abbey. Mm. Other shows that have suffered from hype are Space Force, which we talked about last week, Season 2 of Big Little Lies and True Detective, and the latest seasons of Game of Thrones. They all promise big but failed to deliver. I mean, so can hype kill a project? Yes, hype can definitely kill a show. I think the funny thing at the moment is that whereas hype used to be created by marketing departments, these days... It's very much, I think, created through social media. Mm. I think what's really funny is looking at the way that Netflix deliberately (laughs) doesn't hype the show and almost invites the audience to form a perception of a show based on a previous incarnation of the actor or the creator's Space Force is a good example mm. of this. That was the problem with Space Force. There was very, very little PR and in-depth de- in articles about it. So all that really came out when it came out was a whole lot of bad reviews and it needed the hype to kind mm. of circumvent that. Michael, I mean, why do networks even bother with hyping a show? I mean, aren't you just setting your audience up for a bit of a dis- disappointment? I think the truth is it's an important part of marketing. Mm. To sort of understand the difference between a Netflix environment and any, and traditional you know, Netflix, mm. for example, and Channel 9 have to handle things very differently because when you arrive at Channel 9, you arrive at Channel 9 on a device and all you can see of Channel 9 in that moment is what's transmitting presently. Mm. And in the commercial breaks, they run promos to pitch you know, other shows to you. Netflix is a completely closed ecosystem. So when you land on it, you actually – it's on your television, but it functions like a web page. You land on a homepage. The homepage mm. has 100 billboards on it. So to some extent, Netflix doesn't have to sell you, for argument's sake, Space Force, because they know that 
the algorithm has determined that you watch The Office, that you're a Carell fan, that you like Friends and you're a Lisa Kudrow fan. So it's kind of, it's intersecting all that algorithmic data and Mm. serving you up something in a closed ecosystem where the front page really is a front page, whereas a traditional cable or broadcast network doesn't have a front page in quite the same way. True Detective uh, and Game of Thrones are kind of really good examples of things Mm. that were brilliant and then weren't. And I think that's a really challenging part of it because I think not only are you talking about the struggle to sell something, you're talking about the struggle to maintain the quality of something Mm. once you've sold it. You know, and a really good example even in the Netflix ecosystem is The Get Down, which was Baz Luhrmann's kind of urban um, drama. It just kind of didn't work. It never fired. You know, The Crown's a really good example of where hype works. Like The Crown arrived full of hype and seemed to live up to it. The Get Down had a very similar hype arc which is that it arrived with the same headline which was that after the crown it was the most expensive show made Mm. for television and just the whole thing just seemed overwhelming and it was just the money sort of overtook the narrative and maybe the Mm. crown works because it's the story of a monarch and in true life monarchies and kings and queens are kind of epic true life narratives in a way and And maybe of course of course and then you know there are sort of shows that did like you know breaking bad kind of lives up to its hype the good wife lived up to the hype making the murderer lived up to the hype i think there's a lot of um great examples i I do do think truthfully to answer the question Mm. hype can absolutely kill a show Mm. sometimes it's a necessary dance because i think if you don't have hype you landing in an incredibly congested market and you need Mm. something to kind of sell yourself to the audience the other great thing netflix does is when it does it's sort of no hype strategy something like the stranger things you know that was launched with not one iota of marketing and it was left for the audience to discover and inexplicably it worked it's netflix's most successful drama ever so you kind of you you know that's there's a it's an interesting thing hype when you bring it into the room often you need it Sometimes it can kill you, but, you know, if you learn how to dance with it, you can, you know, you can create hits out of very, very little. To take up what you're just saying, Michael, about Stranger Things, you know, it reminds me of a previous televisionaries podcast where, in fact, I think you're talking about Downton Abbey. And you said that one of the reasons that Downton Abbey was such a hit was because no one was expecting it. I mean, nobody mm. thought mm. that a period drama was going to be a hit with, you mm. know, with audiences at that time. I think Stranger Things in some ways hit a similar nerve. So, I mean, mm. it also goes to show that hype can only go so far. Mm. You know, there's mm. this other side of the business. It's, yeah, it is the William Goldman note line, no one knows anything, where what takes off with an audience at a particular time is completely unpredictable. I mm. mean, mm. and no amount of hype is going to change that. Of course. The other interesting thing too with Stranger Things is Netflix sort of tried to replicate that no marketing launch for the OA, for example. Mm. Mm. And it sort of didn't work for that. I mean, that showed, I mean, I think it got great reviews and it got an audience and it got a reaction, but it certainly didn't feel like it it had the same effect as it did on Stranger Things. Yeah, and then the problem Mm. too is like the hype can really kill. Like the hype around the first season, like as we're saying, like Big Little Lies went so well in its first season, then that hype made for a Big Little Lies Mm. season two and then it just died. 
I think you can also encounter, they, they call that, that sort of the notion of consumer resistance. I mean, a really, a kind of a, a slightly glib example is that during the lockdown, mm. I have been recommended Schitt's Creek by so many people that I think now subconsciously I'm, I find it really hard to start watching it because too many people have said I should. And I think that's a very glib example. The fact is I've had a million other things to do and I've had a lot of work and obviously there's, you know, a whole bunch of things going on and I've had a whole bunch of other things to watch and I will get around to it. But I think there is that thing where you kind of, I feel like it used, it was, it used to be a movie thing and now it's very much a TV thing where before something's even launched, Mm. everyone's told you that you've got to watch it and you can't miss it. And you're a little bit like, oh, I'm just tired of being told how bloody brilliant it is. I'm just, I'm just not going to bother watching as a sort of act of silent protest. And I, I think resistance. that can't be. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's consumer <laughs> resistance. That can't, be, that can't be underestimated. No, it's true. Well, I think that's my attitude with West Wing. I'm now refusing to watch it after so, it's, many, so many That's years. Yeah, look. No. <laughs> I think Paul will just leave it there. I'm not watching West Wing. I don't have 70 hours watch in my life to give over to it. it. No, no. Anyway, let's move on. Next up is game time. Stick around for round one of the Telequisinaries. We're going to look back at Kath and Kim and we'll also check in with what our critics are binging when they're off duty. Today we're playing What Period Drama Am I? Mm. So I'm going to give you a mixture of clues and you have to guess the show. Michael, what's your buzzer? Oh, bzzzt. Bzzzt. Paul, have you got a buzzer? Ding, ding. <laughs> okay. Uh, the first show you have to guess from, so I'm going to read out the first five lines of dialogue. Okay, here we go. Prince Philip of Greece and of Denmark renounces his Greek nationality and all foreign titles and from henceforth he will be known as Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten, Royal Navy. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the crown? It is. Yeah, I think I'm thinking it's the only thing that, that Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark was a character in, in recent <laughs> times. Good work. All right. This six-part series is set in England in 1879. It follows the upper-class gentleman, Arthur Kinnard, and his working-class counterpart, Fergus Souter, and their rivalry, which changed the sport mm. of football forever. Ding, ding. Yes. The English oh. game. Perfect. Well done. Hooray. I got Hooray. one. <laughs> You're on the board. Okay. This Prohibition-era drama set in the 1920s ran for five seasons from oh, 2010. Oh, <laughs> Michael. I only know one prohibition drama on television, which yeah. is Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire. Well done, well done. No, it isn't. A, isn't it? Isn't a popular genre, is it? Uh, no, it's not really. I don't think it's a bit. Not a booming genre, to my recollection. No. <laughs> okay, let's leave that there. We're now going to look at our back catalogue. We'll be back for round two later on. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to check out another new podcast from the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. It's called Good Weekend Talks, and each week you can listen to a full read-through of its most popular cover stories, from inside Scott Morrison's Pentecostal church to the Spanish flu, were we ready for another pandemic? You can listen to the definitive stories that matter to Australians. So after this episode, go and search Good Weekend Talks. For today's back catalogue, we're looking at our own ladies of the manor, Kath Day Knight and her daughter Kim Craig. The creation of Gina Riley and Jane Turner, Kath and Kim is the beloved Australian sitcom that follows the foxy ladies of suburban Fountain Lakes, as well as Kim's second best friend, Sharon Streslecki, played by Magda Sabansky, Kath's metrosexual husband, the purveyor of fine meats, Kel, played by Glenn Robbins, and Kim's put-upon husband, Brett, played by Peter Rosethorne. 
It is one of the highest rating Australian TV shows of all time. It won an Australian Film Institute Award for Best Drama, which is a bit weird. It featured guest appearances from Kylie Minogue and Shane Warne and has given the world catchphrases like, look at Moy, it's nice, it's different, it's unusual, and hunker spunk. It was remade into a US series in 2009, but that show was cancelled after one season. The Australian version is now available on Netflix and on Nine. Before we have a chat, let's listen to this clip, which I don't think really needs much of an introduction. I think Brett's a real find. I mean, he earns a very good salary. You call that a good salary? I want to be effluent, Mum. Effluent. You are effluent, Kim. I mean, look at everything you've got. You've got a high Hyundai to hightail it round in, a half share in a home unit, a DVD player, a mobile. I mean, what else is there? It's not enough. I deserve more. Oh, Kim. Look, I've read all the self-help books and mm. Brett is in his cave right now and you're pulling his rubber bands far too tight. I mean, it's men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Yeah, and you're talking from Uranus. <laughs> I, can't even, I, can't even, I can't even follow that. Um, Michael... Was Kath and Kim noise different or unusual? There's no such thing, I think, as a perfect show. But I think pretty much broadly this didn't put a foot wrong. I mean, it has mm. a legacy of imitation. It has a legacy of quotability. It has things that linger in everyday Australian speech. And I think, interestingly, some of that pre-existed and fed the show. I think the yeah, no, yeah, no, um, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. That's phenomenon actually kind of... Mm predates Kath and Kim but was really crystallised in Kath and Kim and then but, but it just it, it, even its own invented idiosyncrasies kind of linger in our in our speech and I think it sort of juggles it just magnificently juggles um the absurd with the physically or kind of obviously comic mm. it injects a dose of pathos into that and I think we mostly see that through uh, Magda Zabansky's Sharon mm. it's probably a really good example of where the American version went wrong it sort of just mishandled the pathos mm. and played it for the kind of light comedy and it sort of doesn't work the two it only works when they're in tandem it's sort of it, it is delightfully silly and very very funny but it really only works because because Sharon is sort of darkly comatragic and that Kath in her dark moments is riddled with insecurity and that Kel you know when sometimes when Kel looks at other relationships or other men you can see he feels deep inadequacies. You need those poignancies to kind of make the whimsy and the stupid and the silly all work. The funny thing is, you know, every so often usually some pointy-headed academic comes along and makes some great observation about how Australia's never made a great sitcom, which I think is hilarious because, mm. you know, we have made a great sitcom. I mean, Kath and Kim just plays with all of those sitcom tropes. It's so in that territory, you know, you're laughing at the outfits, the hair, the play on words, the, you know, completely ridiculous situations that people find themselves in. Though I do remember there was a bit of criticism of the show that it made fun of, you know, the working classes, which, well, you know, at the same time, there wasn't any outrage over that anyway. So I'm not really sure what that, what that criticism was. But I think the thing that Kath and Kim gets away with brilliantly is that it does play with gender, with ethnicity, with class, with education, mm. with body shapes, all of that stuff. But yet you don't sit there awkwardly waiting for some offensive moment. I mean, mm. it's mm. very comfortable. I mean, you feel you surrender to it. Yeah, it doesn't have a mean bone in its body. No. A lot of that concern over... Um, whether it was insulting to suburban Australia 
I felt like it was driven by, to borrow a phrase from the show, the, the sort of the effluent commentariat. It was kind of, it was mm. a lot of people I felt, you know, uh, sort of middle class commentators frowning on what it had to say about the working class as though the working class weren't sophisticated enough to get the joke and that actually they had to somehow be insulated from it. And I thought that was all very sort of shallow and misdirected because my family's working class. I've got relatives that sometimes bear a passing resemblance to the characters in Kath and Kim and I think they're they're magnificent and I think they're magnificent people in real life and I think they're magnificent characterisations of people when that when they're played with in this way it's i think also there's a, it's also a really great lesson in the value i think of sketch comedy as an incubator of sitcom because i actually think i mean paul's right we've got an extraordinary history of sitcom like mm. mother and son i mean frontline we've just got we've done australia is is absolutely among the world's best for producing great sitcoms. The fascinating thing about Kath and Kim, much like Ab Fab, for example, is mm. that this was in fact born on Big Girl's Blouse and something stupid. Mm. And in fact, if you know the work of Jane and Gina and Magda, that sort of, that kind of core fast forward group who in some cases go all the way back to the D generation, you can see the roots of, of, of these characters in sketches as far back as early fast forward. So there's a sort of, you know, in the same way Ab Fab was born from a French and Saunders sketch, there's something terribly organic about kind of testing the idea over and over and then like Mm. letting it blossom into its own thing. And it probably doesn't happen enough. I think if we sat back and went back to Fast Forward or went back to French and Saunders, you could find another half dozen sitcoms buried in there that just never, never saw the light of day. Yeah. Originally, the ABC didn't think it was strong enough because the characters appeared in the sketch show Big Girl's Blouse, which the ABC thought was a failure. They didn't want to go ahead with Kath and Kim. But then it was a huge success and then Channel 7 eventually swooped in uh, and bought it for its fourth season. Interestingly, I think what happened was the ABC was very uncomfortable with it and Robin Kershaw, she kind of manoeuvred it from the comedy department, I think, to the drama department because I think the comedy department wanted to kill it off. And she saw the potential in it. And it's interesting Mm. because the treatment is probably far more the way you would treat a, a scripted drama than the way you would treat a three-minute sketch comedy. Well, speaking of drama, let's check in with what you're both watching. Paul, what's on your box this week? I've been watching this fabulous Israeli drama called False Flag, and I'll just tell you the setup of it because it's a great premise. An Iranian senior minister is kidnapped and there is a sequence of footage, it's possibly doctored, you don't really know, of a handful of people who, um, who did the kidnapping who were identified. So they're outed by the media as the kidnappers, and it turns out that they are these five very ordinary Israeli citizens who may or may not have been involved in the kidnapping. You don't know, because it, as the series goes on, it turns out that they do actually have you know, these secrets hidden away, you know, what you're dealing with is is trying to get to the bottom of what secrets the these people have and whether, in fact, it is this incredibly sophisticated uh, secret service plot to make them look like they might be innocent people but are, in fact, spies, or whether they have just been plucked out of obscurity and wrongfully framed for this um, kidnapping. It's a great little efficient 
scripted drama that, uh, you know, there's no great... I mean, there's a couple of good set pieces in it. There's a couple of great chases and, and you know, very tense moments. But it's very much, uh, you know, kind of psycholo- plays in that psychological drama territory. Great. Okay. Michael, what about you? I base. I mean, I've been trying to finish Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, which is the um, uh, the miniseries about Jeffrey Epstein, mm. based on um, James Patterson's book, which I finally did do this week. I kind of watched the, the bulk of it and got it out of the way. How was it? Incredible! It is incredible, incredible thing. The other thing I've been watching. Um, I feel like I've sort of like most of the lockdown. I've devoted myself to finding really light and pointless things to kind of take me away from all this week feels really mm. heavy. The other thing I watched this week was um. Uh, the Central Park Five, which is the Ken Burns documentary, which I'd never somehow just never ever got around to properly watching, and just in the wake of everything that's happened in the last week, yeah. mm-hmm. I sort of like it was sort of it's it's one of a, a huge number of documentaries or programs I think people have been are, are recommending for context, um, and I think mm. its value is really that it's I mean it is the story extraordinary story of these five kids who essentially are wrongly convicted. Um, of a rape in New York Central Park. But um, I think what's compelling about it is that it's really, the documentary does seem to take the narrative to the deeper problems, which are mm. these sort of deeper kind of cracks in American society where, uh, around the issue of race. Ken Burns is an extraordinary filmmaker. Mm. But it's, an inc- mm. it's an incredible piece of television. Yeah, great. Uh, I'm just trying to finish off season three of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, mainly because there's a Choose Your Own Adventure special that's just been released that I'm mm. barreling towards. Because I love anything to do with Tina Fey, and this is another Tina Fey and Robert Carlock production. And it almost beats, for me, 30 Rock uh, on levels of ridiculous. I mean, the level, the throwaway jokes that they have, a whole other sitcoms would, you know, they'd be on basis of a whole episode and they're just like tossed out the window. There's one episode which is finished, features Ronan Farrow, the actual real Ronan Farrow, investigating mm. a Me Too incident involving a beloved children's puppet. It's so good. It stars Ellie Kemper, Jane Krakowski, who's just incredible, Titus Burgess and the unbeatable Carol Kane. And mm. I highly recommend it. If you want something highly silly, jump on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. All right, we're on to uh, the final round of game time. The score is Michael 2, Paul 1. Let's go. This 2005 drama was written by Peter Berry and directed by Peter Androkidis. At the time mm. of its production, it had a budget in excess of $15 million, making it one of the most expensive shows made in Australia. Critically acclaimed, the series went on to win an AFI and the Logie Award for Best Drama Miniseries. Starring ding, ding. English. Yep, yep. Underbelly? Yep. No. No, I feel like it's a few years out. We're a few years after Mm Underbelly. Okay, here we go. Next next slide. Starring English actor Romolo Garay in the title role, this Network 10 series is loosely based on the life of a girl from Cornwall who was convicted of petty theft and was transported to Australia on the first fleet. I want to say say Mary Bryant. Mary Bryant. I think you should. I think you should. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Isn't that funny? And you know what? So you know what threw me. What, what threw me was while I was thinking, I was flashing back to the episode of Kath and Kim, where Kath watches Mary Bryant, and <laughs> she's uh, she and Kel are eating Kath's chicken feet on the sofa, and she says, "Oh goodness me, come on, Mary Bryant, wash your face." And there's a scene where her face is like splashed with water, and she goes, "Oh, good, someone's done it for you." <laughs> <laughs> and I just I was thinking it can't be Mary Bryant, Mary Bryant. There you go. There we go. Oh God. Uh, the full title of the series was The Incredible Journey of Mary Bryant. Okay, so what show is this monologue from? Okay, ready? 
Do you think that because I am poor, plain, obscure, and little that I have no heart, that I am without soul, I have as much heart as you and as much soul? And if God had given me some beauty and wealth, he would make it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. Oh, God. No, I'm... No, I'm lost too. Jane Eyre. Oh, honestly, goodness me. (laughs) I feel better about being lost, frankly. I was a bit bit ashamed of not getting Mary Bryant quicker. Apologies (laughs) to Peter Androgidas. But um, I don't feel too bad about Jane Eyre. Crikey. Okay, final question. This is the transcript, the last scene. Ready? Yeah. Three daughters married. Oh, Mr. Bennett. God has been very good to us. Oh, come on. Yes. Bing, dong, bing, ding-a-ling, <laughs> bing, bing, bong. Oh but come on. Mr. Bennett. I mean, geez Louise. <laughs> pride, and, pride and prejudice. Oh. Not just any old pride and prejudice, but the bloody Gucci of bloody pride and prejudice. <laughs> the 1995 pride and prejudice. Thank you very much. Well done. Well done. Um, Guys, thank you so much. Uh, pleasure. Paul, did you Absolute enjoy your pleasure. little uh, revisit to our podcast? I did. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you like Paul's pick, A False Flag, you can find the first season on SBS On Demand and you can catch mine and Michael's recommendations of Filthy Rich, The Jeffrey Epstein Story, Central Park Five and The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Well, they're all on Netflix. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and please rate and review us. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Odato and Paul is at Paul underscore Kalina and you can find me at Lou underscore Roog. You can also read stories by Michael, Paul or myself on the mastheads of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. We'll catch up with you next time on The Televisionaries. The Televisionaries is brought to you by the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. It's hosted by myself, Louise Rugendijk. It was created and executively produced by Life Editor Monique Farmer and Culture Editor Matt Burgess. The podcast is produced by LapFan and our Head of Audio is Tom McKendrick. The Nine Network is the owner of this podcast and the streaming service Stan.